I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Come on, who doesn't love saying that? Almost no one. I, mean, I, I don't think James Bond loves saying that. Well, James Bond doesn't have to say that. Right, because he can say... He I'm, gets on James Bond. Exactly, that's why he probably doesn't love saying, I'm Batman. That's fair. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Yes, I'm Batman. Telegram. I am Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. How's it going, Zach? Pretty good. Um, I have some follow-up. Really? Yeah. Um, so my wife listened to the show uh, last week and was, was rather upset with me that I didn't actually explain that uh, the way that I fixed Taco Bell was through the process of modifying the conventional orders by using the Taco Bell app. Uh, So in the app, you get to to decide, you know, oh, I want more of this or less of that or none of this, this instead, that kind of thing. Um, And that's actually how I fixed Taco Bell because I adjusted their ratios and ingredients and all of a sudden the food was much, much better. It's still made of oatmeal though, right? Um, possibly, but you know what? I can't cook oatmeal like that, so I, I, I give them props. Interesting. So what levels do you adjust? So uh, you drop down the, the meat. You uh, raise up the, uh, the rice that, that they use. Um, and we also added onions to just about everything, which they don't normally add. So um, all of that kind of... Oh, and less sour cream and, and cheese stuff, so... You end up with something that's got some more um, vegetable, less meat-like substance, and less strange cheese-like things. Um, and, and it ends up being a much, much tastier uh, burrito. Yeah, that's always been one of my issues with Taco Bell, is it feels like I'm eating a tortilla stuffed with mostly sour cream. Exactly. It's Terrible. Just, it's I, just I, too I don't much. like sour cream. Yeah, yeah like, I, I don't like it in most normal contexts, let alone Taco Bell. I like a little bit of it, maybe like a half a teaspoon or something on a burrito, just because it gives it a little bit mm-hmm. of moisture. But mm-hmm. yeah, they use way too much of it, which is interesting because I didn't think that would be the cheapest thing they could get. It seems like rice would be cheaper. You would think, and yet they're usually pretty stingy on the rice. So bumping up the rice to meat ratio so that it's more like even or even a little bit more in favor of the rice uh, ends up being a lot more palatable. I've found anyway. So yeah. So I uh, wanted to clarify that that truly is how I fix Taco Bell. I see. Uh, yeah. I was thinking yeah. about that later this or earlier this week. Like you didn't actually say how you fixed it. You just explained that you went to Taco Bell. Right. That's, that's how I fixed it. Um, now we just need to get I've, them to uh, put kimchi on one of their burritos and the world would be, would be complete. I think that they would cease becoming Taco Bell and the signs would spontaneously change to something else. Have you had kimchi on a burrito, though? I haven't. Um, It's so good. I've not had the opportunity. I I would certainly like to try it. Like like a carnitas or something? Like a a grilled pork with some rice and black beans and salsa and Mm -hmm. kimchi? It kind of acts like a pico or a salsa would. Yeah, that's that's my go-to burrito as it is, minus minus the kimchi. Um, I'm a... I'm a huge fan of the, the pork, pork or pork burrito. Yeah. Um, pork really? and burrito, I think it's it's the best. Definitely. If you can track down a jar of kimchi and you have a place to store it, go for it. It's fantastic. 
I can dig a hole out, out back. I can I can store a thing. Yeah, my my Korean friend has my Korean friend has a, a special fridge that she keeps kimchi in because she doesn't want it contaminating the rest of her food. So. It's, she has like a normal size fridge in her kitchen, and then next to it is a mini fridge filled with beer and kimchi. Well, see, it's funny because my my initial thought was, what, what does the kimchi need to be protected from? And then I realized, no. oh no, it's everything else that needs to be protected from the kimchi. Oh yeah, you you don't even begin to understand until you you've been there. <laughs> I, I went camping earlier this year, and as is likely with my group of friends, uh, we bought a gallon and a half of kimchi for a week. Mm. Um, it's pr- pretty good. Uh, but unfortunately we forgot it's it. It's rations. Yeah. So we, we, we all met up at, at my friend's house in, in Texas. And then we were going to like get, minimize the number of cars and carpool from there to where we were camping. And we unfortunately forgot all of the kimchi in one of the cars that was getting left behind. Mm. And it was just like sitting there in moderate temperatures in Texas. So it's like mid seventies or something. Um, oh God! Yeah, it it was completely sealed, like in a plastic bag and, and everything. But when we got back and opened the car, you could definitely tell that there had been oysters in that car. It, <laughs> it, it, like it, well, it wasn't unless, as unless you parked that car in the Yukon, that kimchi was getting. Yeah, like it, it wasn't nearly as bad as if like the jar had cracked or something. That that you would just have to sell the car at that point or. Oh, absolutely. Burn you it walk down. Away. But you just walk it down. Claims. It's not worth anything at that point. But <laughs> it, even being closed, like, it was pretty noticeable that there had been kimchi in there. That's intense. That's yeah. some serious stuff. I'm, I'm thinking the ideal way to contain that is to, like, take the gallon bucket of kimchi and then fill a five-gallon bucket with water and just put submerge the kimchi in the water and then put that in your fridge. <laughs> You know what I'm wondering is if we've got a, a different uh, take a different approach here. I, I feel like we've got a potential crowd control weapon here. Um, you know, weaponized kimchi. Oh, I, I, think, I kimchi. think that could be a thing. Could, would we like spray it out of water cannons, or how would this work? I don't know. I mean, do you aerosolize it? Um, you know, like mace, but kimchi. I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's something there. I don't know. I, yeah, I think there's probably a business in here somewhere. Maybe we could build like tiny crossbows that shoot little pieces of kimchi. <laughs> you know what? That might fall under like cruel and unusual punishment, though. That's possible. I don't know if the Geneva Convention made any statements on the use of weaponized cabbage. Yeah, it's probably not going to be allowed. So they might use it at Gitmo. <laughs> oh, I'm sure someone will find a use for it. If you build it, they will come. Yes. So I'm curious, did you watch that video that I sent you today? Uh, yeah, I didn't do my homework at all. Um, I, I, I saw the title and had to read it twice because there were words next to other words that don't normally go together, and I was confused. Really? Um, what and, what and were then, the words that threw you off? Um, Kafka and distributed... Systems. This was the uh, Apache Kafka, for instance. Just that 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 combination um, seems seems obviously interesting, but also naturally confusing. Okay. See, I'm I'm spoiled, and when I hear Kafka, I immediately think of Apache Kafka. So I'm, I know Kafka has uses outside of that. I, I, I think of the Would, author, and then that's yeah, it. It's I, an I author. think of the okay. author followed by the the song Apache. 
So then it's the author <laughs> doing the, the, the dance the that goes along with dance. the song Apache, and that's playing in the back of my head. But then we're talking about distributed systems, and now I'm just thoroughly confused. Yeah. That, that song is deceivingly long. Yes, yes, it is. Don't get suckered into that at, at a dance no, uh, party. It, you, you're like, oh, this is great. Because everyone goes on for like 37 minutes. Yeah, everyone remembers 45 seconds of the lyrics, and then so they start dancing to it, and then realize it goes on for the next 15 minutes, and it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Exactly. There are 45 seconds of those lyrics that are then repeated like 37 million times. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which I'm sure in some way relates to what Apache Kafka actually is. I, I'm okay, not enti- well, yeah. uh, please do, do enlighten me. Uh, I, I'm going to do a much worse job than Jay Krebs could have done if you had just watched the video. But <laughs> so That's remember, fair. we talked a few episodes back about how in distributed systems, you don't really need to know the exact time that events happen, just the order that they happen in. Definitely, I can see it's more important than uh, date accuracy. Yeah, exactly, because if you know the exact order that data change events happen in, then you can kind of, like, rebuild history. Um, So Apache Kafka is... It's a messaging system, so it's designed for communication between uh, disparate platforms, and it's constructed in the way of a log. Um, Hmm. So most people are familiar with, like, Apache logs or Nginx logs, where you have basically a text file, and every time an event happens, it writes something to the end of the file. Um, right. So that, that's the concept of like an append only data structure. Um, Kafka mm-hmm. takes that the next level in that it uses the append only data structure for messaging. So it takes all of the writers of events and creates like a completely serializable version of that, that happens in a distinct order and then persists that in the messaging system and subscribers read from it using a log position, uh, almost like a database follower would. Hmm. So Interesting. It, yeah, so it's super useful in when you're dealing with systems that need to, um, kind of like you would a message queue, subscribe to change events, but it's a little bit different in that the log is persistent, so you don't have to then build another way for... Um, for, for like a follower to catch its way up because you can just start it at the beginning of the log, let it process all the events that everyone else has, has processed already, and now it's caught up. Yeah, that's pretty... That, that's really interesting. I, I, I can understand the, the usefulness uh, of that. Those, those sorts of systems, especially different messaging uh, implementations, I've always found fascinating. So that... Uh, I, I like that idea of, of it being both a message system as well as a kind of a logging system uh, combined into one. I think that's that that uh, has some real nice uses. Yeah, it it's interesting. And at this point, I haven't actually gotten to use it. I'm just looking at it for a project that I'm going to be working on. But I'm hoping that it's going to solve a lot of the issues that that we've had with kind of the the messaging between disparate systems we've we've done in the past. Yeah, it's. It's funny, you know, the dis- distributed systems obviously are superior to single point failure systems in so very many different ways. Uh, but they do present interesting and unique engineering challenges uh, that you don't find in other sorts of setups. Yeah, for sure. It It's much more difficult to just reason about a distributed system because there's just so many more moving parts. Yeah. So if you weren't doing the the homework I sent you, what have you been up to? 
yeah, it's been, well, I did say it was a big week. It's, it's been a relatively big week. Um, had a couple of different client meetings, uh, juggling a handful of different things, uh, all at once, getting to, to work on some branding, uh, nice little branding project, which, uh, it's been a while since I had a, just a straightforward logo design sort of, uh, sort of work, which, which is nice. Um, exercise different parts of my brain that don't involve programming and get logs and all sorts of other, you know, uh, lovely engineering type things. So, uh, it's been nice bust out the, the paper and pen and sketch out ideas analog style. So, so how do you go, nice. how do you go about developing branding like that? What's kind of um, your process? It's, uh, I, I always I always have to start off with uh, a good, uh, successful meeting with the client. Um, and, and I judge good and successful based on, by the end of the meeting, do I have a good idea of who the client is as a business? Um, what kind of business they are, what their goals are, uh, how they want to project themselves to the world. Um, because whether someone's an expert in branding or marketing or not, they at least have a generally good idea of who they want to be or, or how they want to be perceived by others. So I start with that, and from there can can develop a successful brand. Um, uh, so, yeah, open communication is kind of the, the first step for me. Once I've got a feel for who they are and what they want to do, I dive into uh, to sketching. I go old school uh, index cards, uh, special kind of pen that I really like uh, that's extremely fine fine point pen um, and I just kind of put, throw down everything that comes to mind and usually the first several ideas are just awful um, they're either obvious or they're cliched uh, been done a hundred times or just don't convey everything that the client wants uh, to have conveyed in, in the logo so once I get through, through the, those initial ideas uh, you start stretching the boundaries, you start exploring other concepts, um, usually different ways of showing or describing something visually. Um, maybe when I first started off, it was a strictly typographic logo and, you know, we're, you know, playing with different letter forms and type. And then as it progresses, it's, well, how can we break that type apart? How can we simplify it? Um, maybe get the mark from, you know, a full word down to some lines that are representative of that word that you can then play and warp into uh, a unique mark. Um, so that's kind of the stage that I'm at now, playing around with uh, with the different uh, concepts, different ideas, see which ones uh, actually have some, some chance of developing and have some, some flexibility. Um, one of the, the new things that I've added to my process uh, early on now is... It's, it's an idea of a logo being responsive. Uh, we know that you know responsive web design has been all the rage recently, that a website should respond to the device that it's on the screen size that, that the device has, things like that. Um, and I've been playing with the idea of logo design being the same way, that you can take a mark that in an expanded context, maybe use on a billboard or a giant sign, um, has more information or has more detail to it that then when consolidated down to its smallest form, maybe it's seen as a fave icon or a Twitter avatar or something like that, um, it's a smaller consolidated mark that still reads as the same logo. Um, 
like a great example of this is like uh, the Walt Disney logo, where you know the full version of the logo has the full name Walt Disney, and usually you know like a castle in the background or whatever. But you can shrink that all the way down to just that stylized D, and you know that it's Disney. Um, that that logo has the same weight, so kind of thinking about that early on in the process has been something new I've added in. That's interesting. Um, so with the concept of responsive logo, des- logo design, is it simply responsive to size or is it also responsive to uh, different things like medium and maybe content? Like I, I remember USA Today did kind of a similar thing where they they were changing their logo on a regular basis, kind of depending on the mood of that day almost. Um, where yeah. it was the same basic logo, but then they would make little tweaks to it. What, what do yeah, you think of things like that? I think there's a line. At, at a certain point, it stops becoming a logo. Um, and in it, it stops being recognizable as that logo. Um, USA Today's um, logo designs were, were interesting. Um, I, I remember seeing some examples of that where, you know, all of a sudden the the content of it does change pretty dramatically. Um, and I think in some cases it was more successful than others. Mm-hmm. I think that's the risk that you kind of run with this sort of thing is at what point do you stop being um, recognizable? At what point does it stop being obviously the, you know, representing the same thing? Uh, I think an example of a company that's that's done a really good job of that is Google with the Google homepage and the Google Doodles. Um, you can get some really, really abstract, vague hints at the word Google done in some of those doodles, and you still get it. Um, now, the context of that illustration helps dramatically. Uh, you know, they don't take those and then, you know, like, create billboards with them, and you just kind of stare at it, and you don't really get that it's Google. Yeah, it's um, always placed on the exact same spot on the same homepage, so it's the context of it itself almost is the logo. Exactly, exactly. You see that, yeah, my address bar says google.com, and I know, you know, the word Google, I mean, my word, it's become, you know, a verb now. It's got so much power. Um, Almost the word itself is the logo. So no matter what way you write or represent that visually, it's going to have the same same power. Um, I, I think that sort of thing is really interesting, especially where we have a lot of different cases uh, now that a logo can be seen in really high fidelity, um, bold colors, transparency, things that back in the day you just never would consider when it came to logo design because it wasn't flexible enough. Um, and, and I still think that the best logos can be consolidated down to a black and white form and are easily recognizable as that. But I think there's something to be said for... Um, skilled embellishment of a logo and correct usage of things like transparency, multiple colors beyond just one or two, uh, things like that. And I think having a logo and, and approaching it from that responsive perspective allows for embellishment like that at one end of the, the spectrum, as long as at the other end, it's still recognizable in a very simple black and white form. Yeah. I think it just has to stay in its place of exactly what you said is embellishment. Like it, it can add to the design, but it shouldn't be a requirement for the design. Right. It, it and that's why... I- yeah, it should have to be able to shrink back to that like lowest common denominator and still portray the iconography of that brand. Exactly. And that's why I approach 
projects like this now as saying that it's branding rather than saying strictly logo design because logo design I feel is a little too narrow. Yeah, there's um, no such thing as of, just designing a logo. You're you're designing yeah, an entire corporate feel. Exactly. So those are the sorts of projects that that I'm looking at um, getting more of now. You know, I'm not saying, oh, you know, I, I design websites, so you know, come to me and I'll build your website, or I do business cards, come to me, I'll design your business card. You know, that's that's not the sort of stuff I'm necessarily interested in, and I, and I don't think it's the sort of thing that. Uh, is going to be very successful for the client either. Um, it sets them up with a false expectation. I think in order for any of those projects to really be successful, they need to be done in a cohesive uh, package and, and be done and considered together. Uh, if I'm going to do a business card design, I want to have control over the logo to make sure that the logo going on that business card is really good. Um, I think it kind of boils down to the content that you have. You can't... Um, you can't create something awesome with really terrible content. So if I'm going to be creating a website or a business card or any other kind of design, I want that first core thing, the logo, to be high quality. Um, and vice versa, you know, if I've got a really high quality logo and you just, you know, throw together a really crappy looking website, uh, that's not doing the logo any favors either. So, you know, kind of from a designer perspective i like having that control over everything but i think that goes to serve the client really well uh, also that they've got someone with a cohesive vision for their entire brand um, someone that understands them kind of going back to communication and making right from the start that i understand that company as well as i can um, and then applying that understanding to everything about uh, the way they're presented to the world yeah, that's definitely an ideal circumstance when you have, when you're basically like given carte blanche and you're told to design the entire brand for this entire corporate entity. Mm-hmm. I think what's a little bit more difficult sometimes is when you're not given that carte blanche and you're just told like we're going to stick with this logo with this aspect of our branding, but we do need new business cards or a new website or something. So you have to almost like mind meld with what the developer or what the designer was thinking before that and try and become them and interpret that design into this new product. Yeah. You know, it's, it's good to, to talk in theory. Um, but you know, no good, you know, no plan survives first encounter with the enemy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the client can completely throw a, a wrench in the work sometimes. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's awesome to be able to walk in from the start and say, yep, you know, here you go. We want you to do everything, but that's not always the case. Um, I know I've talked to some other designers, um, that, that I know, and one of the approaches, uh, something they've been doing, which, um, is, is really neat. I'm, I'm adopting it myself now is when delivering, uh, that logo design, um, outside of, you know, the conventional deliverables of that logo in various file formats and things like that. Um, they're providing a sort of, um, mood board or brand board that takes that logo and mocks it up in various contexts. Um, and I, I love it because it's a great example of show rather than tell, you can tell someone, look, I designed this logo in such a way so it looks great on all these different contexts. But they're not necessarily going to believe you or see the difference between their previous logo and their current and what you've designed if you don't show them. 
So, you know, delivering uh, something that includes mock-ups of, you know, what this thing looks like on the side of a, a van, what it looks like on a notebook, what it looks like on a mug, on a T-shirt, um, or even, you know, some specialized um, applications depending on the, the business. Um, I, I, th- I think it's fantastic. I know other designers I've talked to have found it to be extremely successful because all of a sudden the client uh, understands a whole lot better <laughs> what uh, what you're trying to do and what the potential is of the the logo you've designed. Um, so it's something that uh, that I'm going to start uh, adopting as well. I, I really like the the approach. Yeah, and I think that definitely gives cues to designers later on down the road of how you originally in, in, kind of envisioned this product getting expanded. Yeah, that was the uh, the one designer I was talking to about it. You know, that that's even what he said. It isn't necessarily like you're saying, "Hey, hire me back so that I can make you a T-shirt and I can make you this and I can make you that." Because that may not happen for whatever reason, whether they're not interested in it or they don't have the budget for it or whatever. But if someone less experienced in house at that company now has to, you know, move forward and create a Facebook page or a Twitter page or a newsletter or whatever, they've got something more to reference than just a logo file. And who knows, you know, maybe whatever they create is going to look better than it would have otherwise. And frankly, if there's less bad design in the world, period, I'm going to be happier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's the same thing with developers and like commenting your code and having a, like a sane commit history and things like that. It's, it's just promoting more good development in the world, which is something we need. I, I've, yeah. dealt with an, I've dealt with enough bad development this week to understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when you think about that. Um, you know, good development, bad development, good practices, um, bad practices. It, it's interesting how um, things, the specifics may change, but I think the principles remain the same uh, no matter the context or no matter the what the particular application may change. Yeah, it... I didn't want to rant about the stuff I was working on this week, but I wish more people were actually <laughs> sane enough to, to think about things like that. Simple things like not doing releases of your widely used software library when not all of your unit tests are passing. Oh. Yeah. Come on. That, that, that should be common sense. Oh, it should, it should be. And the, the other developer I was working with on this, trying to debug whatever was happening in our in our product that was using this library thought, thought the exact same thing. But, you know, we were able to finally track down the issue in this library and, and basically fix it in good enough state that we could submit a pull request. But then we went and cloned the, uh, the library from GitHub and went to, like, write a unit test for it and found that, oh, a thousand of the unit tests are currently failing. And that, that's it's before like- we implemented our stuff. It's like if, you know, a, a car company went through and, and built a car and just decided not to test anything on the way out. Mm-hmm. You know, they stuck the key in the ignition. All right, it turns on. Cool. All right, that one's, that one's good. We can yeah, sell that one. So, it's, wait, what? what? <laughs> it's the joke that programmers always make that, uh, oh, it compiles, let's ship it. No? Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, the the back doors don't close. You're missing a rear windshield, and it's got three out of the four tires. <laughs> but it turns on. So, so you're good. saying it's at seventy five percent? Exactly. 
So I'm traveling, looks like, this winter. Exciting! You going to, like, Boca Raton, or, you know... Boca- I don't even know where Boca Raton is. I think it's in Florida. I'm not 100% sure. (laughs) Florida, one of my least favorite states. Uh. Come on, is Florida anyone's favorite state? I'm sure somebody. Even even people from Florida, I don't think Florida's their favorite state. Oh, all of the people from Florida don't like Florida, but I'm I'm pretty sure there's a number (laughs) of people who like Florida. This this thing's going on the internet, right? Or it, someone someone will tell us that they like Florida. I don't, yes. Nobody tells us that they like Florida before the, the start yes. of the next show. I'm just going to assume that no one likes Florida. Well, uh, you, listeners, you can email Zach Labar at gmail dot com. Nope. Yeah, let's see if anyone can spell my name right. That's true, but I don't I have an like, email I feel address. Like you don't have any no that's you don't have an email address do you no no I'm a Luddite I do what are computers <laughs> yeah I send you carrier pigeons we're actually doing this podcast over carrier pigeon <laughs> tin cans and string yes it's uh, it's amazing what modern day 18th century technology can do <laughs> you're in the other room I'm just talking really loud <laughs> no no, I am theoretically going to Vietnam this winter. Oh, very nice. Yes. Now you've been to you've been to Southeast Asia before, but I don't think Vietnam. Correct. So, I in 2013 I spent two weeks in Thailand. Okay. Which you survived that? I did. I don't know. I guess Thailand is Southeast Asia. It was definitely Asian, um, but I would it's. Consider it. It's like a very westernized Southeast Asia. Um, you can you can get off the plane in Thailand or in in Bangkok, and per, depending on who you are and like what you're looking for, you can just forget that you're in a foreign country, or you could like full on realize that you're in Southeast Asia and eat all sorts of amazing food off the side of the road. Um, so I tried to do the latter, but Naturally. you know I'm white, so not every. <laughs> Uh, you still end up That's in... That's a handicap while traveling, isn't it? It is, it is. Especially in areas like that, because you end up spending three times as much money to get the same thing that locals do. Um, yup. Which is still pretty reasonable. <laughs> it, it is. When, when we were down in Nicaragua, we were uh, being shown around by some friends of ours who had lived down there for a couple of years already. And when we went to the open-air market that truly, you know, looked like something out of a movie... Uh, stalls everywhere, strange smells, fruits and vegetables that I still don't know what their names were. Uh, it, it was fantastic. Um, she she'd even said the uh, friend of ours who'd been down there for years that she's pretty sure she still gets uh, hustle at, at the market, despite knowing almost all of the sellers there. She's pretty sure they still overcharge her. <laughs> <laughs> That's and knowing that she lives down there, you know, it's, she's not a tourist. They know she lives there, but they're like, yeah, nah, she can, she can afford it. We'll charge her you know, twice as much. It's it's inevitable unless you're actually a local. You're like a local who's actually born there. It's going to happen. Like um, a friend of mine who was born in Vietnam. She lived there until she was six or so, and then came to the states. Just recently went back to visit for a couple weeks, and despite the fact that she 
is full-on Vietnamese. There's no way you could tell visually that she didn't live there her whole life. Still got overcharged on everything. <laughs> well, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah, so <laughs> it's inevitable. <laughs> you just so, reek of foreign nuts. That's what it is. It's a different kind of fish sauce in the U.S., so you smell different. <laughs> you know, they never tell you the saying among... Uh, at least some Vietnamese people that I know to like, as almost like a macho, like I'm a real Vietnamese person thing. Mm, no, I don't think you have. So literally translated, it means I drink fish sauce every day. Huh. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty great. Yeah, it's like just proof of how iconic fish sauce is in their culture, I guess. Like that's the symbol yeah. of, of what it means to be Vietnamese. Probably I think it fit in well. <laughs> yeah, I don't use nearly as much fish sauce as they do. Yeah, that's fair. That's Just fine. more than the average American. <laughs> well, any is more than the average American. <laughs> Very true. Although Very I, I true. suppose they use Worcestershire sauce, which is basically the same thing. Yeah, except for if you told anyone that, it'd blow their minds. <laughs> yeah, this has rotting anchovies in it? What? Yeah, exactly, exactly. We were at the store the other day. We were looking for different kinds of um, uh, sauces. We were in the, the Asian food aisle, and a couple of them sounded pretty good. My wife was reviewing, you know, what what was in them. She's like, wait, what? Is, and and I, we, I just had to tell her to stop looking because if she read any more, she wouldn't try it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, what kind of sauce was yeah. it? Um, I think it was a, if I'm remembering right, it was a type of um, Szechuan uh, you know, like a traditional spicy Szechuan sauce. And she's like, why is there fish sauce in here? Like, just don't worry about it. It'll be good, I promise. Why wouldn't there be fish <laughs> sauce in there? It adds umami to everything that, it touches. That's that's the better question. Why wouldn't it be in there? Yeah. <laughs> if it's not in there, I'm buying the wrong sauce. <laughs> it's it's literally just funky salt. That's all it is. Yeah. And what's, what's so bad about funky salt? I'm, Absolutely I'm nothing. It's that. delicious. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do in Vietnam because I want to spend like between three and four weeks there this time. Okay, um, very per- nice. Partially for the language, I want to try and immerse myself in the language more and become like at least a quarter of the way fluent because I'm not right now. Um, sure. And I'm contemplating so flying into Ho Chi Minh City, subtitle Saigon, depending on who you are. Um, <laughs> Depending on who you are and when you left the country. Um, exactly. Looking to spend a few weeks there in that city and then thinking about the possibility of buying a motorcycle and riding up the coast to, to Hanoi. I, I was hoping you were going to say that because, frankly, that that's about the coolest thing you can do. I mean, if you do that and maybe grow like a pair of mutton chops, you're like halfway to Wolverine. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be... Saying. I mean, by the end of four weeks, I'm going to be pretty bearded, because I don't know if I'll shave yeah. while I'm there, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just debating in my head if if I really want to commit to spending 1,200 miles on a motorbike. True, that is a... <laughs> it's a long way. It's it's a very long way, um, in a, you know, strange country where you don't really speak the language. I don't really speak the language. I have some but limited experience fixing, like, motorcycles. Um, <laughs> I, I imagine it will break down at least twice, so need to be prepared for that. 
<laughs> well, it's true because it's not like you're going to get off the plane and walk to like the nearest BMW dealership and be like, "Hi, I'll take one of those to go." Thank you. No, I'm, I'm going to be buying something from the '70s, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> so you will be buying Wolverine's bike. <laughs> that's that's what you're telling. Probably. Like, <laughs> I, I assume you watch the TV show Top Gear. Uh, on occasion, yeah. Yeah, so they did a special in Vietnam a few years ago, and they did, and they're kind of the inspiration for this whole road trip idea. They uh, flew into Ho Chi Minh City, and each of the three of them purchased a motorbike. Um, I think Clarkson ended up with like a Honda 200 or something, or a Vespa. <laughs> it was a terrible choice. Um, <laughs> it was the funniest thing, you didn't know how Oh, yeah, he didn't know how to use the kickstand, so it was just constantly falling over. Um, <laughs> and then somebody else bought, like, a motorcycle from the 80s or something that the Taliban rides. And <laughs> so it's a collection of things like that. Um, and then they did, uh, quote, what the Americans couldn't do in 10 years, which was get from the south to the north. <laughs> yeah. Touche. Yeah. But uh, they they definitely had their fair share of difficulties on those bikes, um, breaking down numerous times along the trip. And I'm thinking, while they were doing that and they were breaking down, they had a camera truck with them to, in like a case of emergency. I wouldn't have a camera yeah. truck, so I'm wondering if it's really a good decision. Yeah, you wouldn't have a camera truck. That's true. Unless um, you want to come and drive a camera truck behind me. <laughs> As exciting as that sounds, I'm I'm gonna go with no. Oh, you're gonna miss so um, much driving a van behind me. That's, that's true. I will miss a lot of driving a van behind you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, you know. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, how good's the public transportation in Vietnam? I mean, are we talking, you know, buses from the '70s that that you'd be taking from Ho Chi Minh City to Hanoi? You mean as an alternative? Right, exactly. Like, if you don't go with the I buy an ancient motorcycle that was probably last used during the Vietnam War, um, you know, what, what are your other options? Uh, so bus is an option, train is an option, and flying is an option. Um, okay, well, flying sounds annoying. Right, flying's kind of annoying. Now, intra-Asian flights are super cheap, which is nice. Um, I think nice. you, can, you can get a one-way flight from Ho Chi Minh to Hanoi for, I think it's like $70. Um, That's great. Trains and buses, from what I understand, are roughly the same price. Okay. Well, so, if, if you know, I, I, I always go train myself. But. Yeah, I mean, this isn't Amtrak. Trains in in uh, Southeast Asia are generally not great. <laughs> You're, True. You're, you're looking at. I'm betting the buses aren't amazing either. <laughs> no, the buses are pretty bad too. But the the train cars you're looking at a train car like from the 50s and 60s, no air conditioning, just maybe a fan if you're like if you're fortunate, or just open window, um, <laughs> hardwood and benches, that sort of thing. So. It's, I, I feel like all of them sound like an adventure. To be sure, all, all of them um, are an adventure. Like through yeah. Thailand, through Thailand, I took the bus from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, and, okay. and back, and then from Bangkok to the south when we wanted to go to the beach, I took a train. I definitely enjoyed the train more, but I think the bus was probably more efficient. Uh, yeah, because the train was pretty slow. But 
Yeah, I mean, that that is the other thing to, to think about is what the infrastructure is like in Vietnam. You know, are the roads actually pretty good um, or are the train tracks just as good as the pothole-covered, you know, roads or something? Yeah, I feel like it's probably going to be be roughly equivalent either way. Um, yeah, it, it feels like the kind of thing that you're not really going to know until you're there. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> so it makes it very difficult to plan in advance. Yeah, it's probably one of those things where I'll prepare to possibly do the motorbike trip, but then not be super attached to it if something happens when I get there. Well, and I mean, the other the other idea is to, you know, do some, you know, break it up. Uh, do the motorcycle for a certain amount, do the train for a certain amount, the bus for a certain amount, something like that. Um, mix it up a little bit. Yeah, that has the downside of you still have to sell the bike at some point. So it's all the yeah. extra work of doing that. Uh, without actually utilizing it the full way. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to think about it more, but there is something super appealing about the adventure of that. Oh, yeah. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. Have you have you done uh, road trips on bikes before? I've not. Uh, in fact, I've never ridden a motorcycle in my life. Um, but really? it certainly looks fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surprising. I've, I've done four wheelers um, and you know conventional pedal bikes, um, which I, I discovered are, are called push bikes by Australians. I, I didn't realize this. Um, really? Is that yeah, because yeah. you're pushing the pedals with your feet? I guess um, when somebody uh, yeah well, when we were down in in Nicaragua there there were a lot of Australians um, uh, where where we were anyway and they kept referring to push bikes and I thought it was a different thing because down like there, a there scooter was, type uh, of thing well and there was a type of uh, wheelchair that you could use that you pedaled with your hands um, so if someone didn't have full or good use of their legs they could still get around on a bike. Um, by using this other kind of thing, using their hands. And I thought that's what they were referring to. So I was amazed at how many people had push bikes. And I'm like, wow, that, that's, you know, it sounds crazy. I've, you know, never seen this sort of thing before. And, and then I come to find out, no, they just mean a bike, like, you know, a regular, regular bicycle. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's less exciting. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how many different names people have for things. Just yeah. throughout different cultures. We were just talking about this with a friend of mine from South Africa the other day. I can't think of any of the terms he used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. We we kind of encountered the same thing. Um, we ran into Australians, Canadians, uh, Swedes, um, you know, lots of different uh, different people from different places. And, yeah, the different terminology, outside of just, you know, idioms, different, you know, local ways of saying things but just you know straight up like they they call one thing something completely different um it's it's surprising when when you realize yeah everybody's speaking the same language technically yeah technically although Te- it's australian english and american english and proper british english mm-hmm. yeah i was i was amazed we met quite a few uh people from from sweden and they had amazing command of english as well as you know speaking Swedish quite fluently and we really didn't think it was fair and we you know they, they talked about in the the education system there learning English is one of the few 
you know, core courses um, in school. They consider that to be something required to graduate um, from high school. You need to be able to speak English fluently. Uh, yeah, it was really interesting. You know, they, they focus on social studies, math, science, um, Swedish, and English. And those five things, if you don't pass those core classes, you don't graduate. Um, it, it was interesting just to see the focus that they put on something that is a foreign language. You'd, you'd never get that kind of uh, support from any uh, education here in the States. Well, I guess the difference is for Sweden to kind of compete in a world market and to be a part of world trade, they need to be able to speak either English or Chinese, probably. Yeah. English or Chinese or Spanish. Whereas in English speaking countries, they don't necessarily need to be able to speak Swedish. Right. Exactly. It's, it's interesting because I almost feel like it it speaks just to a different, um, prioritization of things. Like, you know, they realize that sure Swedish might be your, your native tongue, your mother tongue. Um, but like you said, to, to commute, just to be a part of the world in general, it's learning and knowing English or like you said, Chinese, you know, some other language like that is, it's, it's imperative. You're, you're not going to be very successful without knowing, uh, one of those languages. What do you think about the importance of actually learning a second language, even if your first language is like English or Chinese, where you could probably get by the rest of your life without needing to know a second one. How important do you think it is to learn a second language at some point? I think it changes who you are uh, as a person. Uh, I genuinely do. Um, I don't think everyone takes uh, an opportunity to learn another language. I think there's a lot of people who feel like they, like you said, if they have absolutely no reason to learn another language, they're not going to take that opportunity. Um, but I, I really do think that it fundamentally changes not just how you um, perceive yourself, but also how you how you see others. Um, and, and if you can go one step further of not just learning another language, but being in another place that speaks another language that you don't, it's very humbling. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely does seem to kind of open your mind to just new possibilities, things that you hadn't learned before. How, how do you think it actually changes you as a person, though? Um, I think you have to sort of... It it breaks you out of, out of the bubble that you maybe didn't even realize was there. Um, I think especially that's the case in, in this country, um, where your world can be so insulated. Um, and, and you can even, you can even imagine that it's relatively expansive because, you know, perhaps you've traveled all around the United States. Oh, you know, you've seen a bunch of different things and been to a lot of different places, but at the same time, you haven't really seen another culture. You haven't really seen someone who is in a completely different state of mind, a completely different, um, a way of viewing the world. And when you start to learn another language, you inherently have to learn about that culture because language is such a fundamental part of, of life. You, you learn, uh, so much about, about a different, you know, a different place and the people there by learning and understanding how they communicate, how they express themselves. Um, that's why I feel like going that next step and visiting a place like that, um, really helps you to immerse yourself in that. Um, but it, you can't help but feel different and to view your world as different when you, 
you know, are forced to kind of look through, uh, through the lens of, of someone else because you're speaking their language. Yeah. I, you almost just seem, I don't know. I've, I've always gotten the feeling that people who have traveled in their lives and seen other cultures and seen how other people live, they, they have this certain quietness about them where somebody who has stayed in the U S their whole life tends to, to not have that kind of, kind of thing. They tend to be more like immediately judgmental, more immediately jumping to conclusions where someone who's traveled tends to not do that quite as quickly. And I think it's, it's part of what you're talking about there. Um, just being like more aware of how other people work and even that there are just other ways. Yeah. I think you realize that there's not always one way of doing something. Um, even if that something is, you know, speaking, um, you know, sharing how you feel or the, when, when you learn how to, to express yourself in a different language or understand what someone else is saying, um, you, yeah, you have to, you have to admit that, okay, there's, there's a different way of looking at this. There's a different way of doing things. Yeah. There's no way to, to spend so much time in someone else's culture and I don't know, stay super opinionated as you might've been before. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I meant by, you know, being humbling. Um, learning another language has always, has always scared me. Um, you know, we, we were down in Central America for two months and yet, you know, I certainly don't, don't say that I can speak Spanish. Um, I can understand Spanish better than I could before. Um, I can say more words in Spanish than I could before, but I certainly don't, don't speak the language. Um, but even just doing that, you know, being somewhere that, that you can't fully express the way that you feel. I mean, you know, you know me, you, I ramble. <laughs> I use a lot of words to, to describe how I feel. And when you're in a situation in a place where that's taken away from you, you can't help but feel humbled that someone else whoever you're talking to, if they've got a better command of the language than you do, they know more than you do. Bottom line, because they know a lot of stuff that you don't. And they know how to express themselves and get things done that you don't know how to do. And you have to, to come to terms with that. And that can, can really shake up a person's world. Yeah, it's, it's like the um, old kind of cliched saying now, don't make fun of someone's broken English because that means they know another one. Yep. <laughs> they know another language. Like, uh, oh, this this person doesn't speak very good English. I'm going to make fun of them. Oh, wait, that means that their Mandarin is a whole lot better than mine. Yeah, and that kind of <laughs> – that that goes to that, you know, the breaking out of that bubble, looking at it from a different perspective. You know, when you're doing that, you're thinking, oh, well, clearly they have lived the exact same life as me except for they're just not smart enough to speak English the way I do. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> it's you just sound like so- <laughs> you just sound like someone from Arkansas. <laughs> there go all of our Arkansas listeners. Yeah, gone. Because we had some. <laughs> so many. We're doing amazing in Arkansas. We're huge in Finland. The Ozarks love us. <laughs> Do you know it's a required part of getting a driver's license in Finland to spend, I think it's 8 or 12 hours on a skid pad. What? Mm-hmm. You have to spend, like, between 8 and 12 hours taking your car and 
like basically doing donuts and skidding around on like an airport runway. <laughs> is this because their their roads are more ice than asphalt? I think it's just because they have sane people in government. <laughs> yeah, that's also possible. See, that was one of the things driving around, which this is something else to think about on your, you know, epic uh Southeast Asian voyage, uh, the road laws and the way other people drive in foreign countries is is really interesting, um, and to a certain extent, I actually like it better. You're, you, when you're driving through Central America, you get there are no rules; everything is optional, and you know drive at your own risk. Whereas here in the states, you you get on the road with the general assumption these people had to take a course. They had to pass a test. They should know what to do and what not to do, and then they don't. Yeah, Vietnam is that to several powers more. <laughs> See, I, I almost I want to expect the anarchy. I, I just just go into it with that. It's like driving in New York City. It's the same kind of thing. You have to you have to embrace the chaos. Otherwise, Try- everything will make you angry. Driving in New York City is a very interesting thing because it is a certain kind of flow state where it just kind of works, mm-hmm. and there's way more cars on the road than you think are ever going to be possible, but people just keep looking forward and going forward and accepting that you're going to cut them off, and it just flows. Yeah, or it should even but, happen. I mean, why, why, why should you drive through New York City? I just, it baffles me. Yeah, I do it on a regular basis, but somehow it kind of works, and as long as you're in the States, that's kind of amazing. (laughs) Bangkok, on the other hand, (laughs) is New York City, although multiplied by... (laughs) I didn't actually see any cows when I was there. Really? I mean, I I saw cows, but not, like, in the city of Bangkok. Um, So you get to Bangkok, and the first thing you notice is there's a lot of taxis on the road. But there's also a whole lot of motorbikes. Like, at least (laughs) twice the number of cars are the number of motorcycles on the street. There's a whole lot of buses from the 1950s. And they're all sharing the same space, this, like, moderately sized roads. But there's three times the amount of people on the road as there ever are in New York, even (laughs) in the busiest days. And it's happening 24-7. Yeah. And so it's... It just becomes this, like, chaotic, like, river of human beings on riding mechanical machines, and it's just flowing, and it makes absolutely no sense how it's working, because there's motorcycles with families of four and a sheet of plywood, (laughs) but it just works. Yeah, (laughs) it reminds me, in in Nicaragua, especially in the more rural areas, there, there were these things that they called motos. Which are basically like you, you took a, a like a Vespa, but it had three wheels. You, you took a Vespa and then you put like a sort of a roof over the top of it. Um, and these things would tear around on the streets as though they were cars. They most definitely are not cars, but they drove around like they were cars. And my favorite was when they would use them, you know, to, to transport materials. We saw one guy who had to have had at least a, a 10 to 15 foot piece of metal pipe that was attached to the top of this of this moto 
it looked like he was like jousting someone. It looked insane. He was going to impale something <laughs> with that giant metal rod. Um, but no, you know, it worked. He got where he needed to go, I guess. It just looked it looked insanely dangerous and absolutely ridiculous. And yet, you know, it's you got to do what you got to do. Remind me to put that on my things of, to do either before or like directly before I die is uh, bicycle <laughs> jousting. Exactly. It may be directly before you die. Right. It may, it may be uh, the actual cause. The yeah. two may be related. <laughs> Doctor, he has this metal pole sticking out of his chest. That might be a problem. Hey, it gives a new meaning to defensive driving. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. I mean, we, we can't prove causation. You don't want to be dogmatic. But it might I'm have caused saying. his death. I'm just saying. <laughs> metal pole, driving... Yeah. Just say. Surprisingly enough, he died of cancer. <laughs> bee stings. So many bee stings. <laughs> Where are you that has that many bees? I don't know. Yeah. Stab the giant pole into a beehive. <laughs> so anyway, I'll, I'll be interested to see what the roads and what the traffic is like in Vietnam. Because from what I hear, it's actually worse. Mm. Worse than, than Bangkok. Mm. Um like, like people have described it to me as the same sort of like flow state that that Bangkok gets into, but then at the same time, I've talked to people who, like Vietnamese people who came over in this, like eighties and nineties, who were truck drivers in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and they've all had experiences where they've been in accidents that killed people, and <laughs> they view it. Like they, they were very clearly like sad that this happened, and and they they wish that it hadn't. But at the same time, they just kind of had this matter-of-factness to them where it was just a part of being a truck driver was that you're going to kill people. Yeah. And I think part of it is, like, automobiles are are so newly introduced to the culture that people have started using the technology, but they haven't really, like, adapted their minds to thinking about what it can do. Mm -hmm. So the result is you get people on bikes and they just kind of pull out into the street without looking because that's the mentality of someone who grew up walking. You don't really think like looking both ways if you're just walking. Uh, And the result is just a lot of traffic deaths, which is terrible. Yeah, it is the sort of thing like it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. It's obviously tragic, but at the same time, it's so difficult to, to do much more than, than educate and hope that, you know, more people will, will realize the the deadly power of some of these vehicles. You know, if, if all you're used to is, you know, bicycles and people, um, yeah, you know, a bicycle runs into a person. It's not going to be pretty. There's going to be some broken something, but no one's going to die. Mm-hmm. Probably not, anyway. Unless you're um, that guy in Central Park last year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, you ride a bike or walk out in front of a truck, that's it. Yeah, you're it's done. It's over. It's over. Um, there's no two ways about that. So yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird uh, juxtaposition for sure. You know, modern technology and things like this in in places that uh, we're in such a hurry to acquire and make use of it because of necessity, and yet weren't ready for it. Yeah, it's it's just a sad, I and mean, it's probably a consequence really of. Uh, French colonization and, and the war, which mm-hmm. is definitely a subject I don't want to get into right now. But <laughs> <laughs> it, no. 
I won't yeah, touch yeah. that with a 10-foot jousting pole on top of a moto. No. It, just the result of all of that was Vietnam was a country that was kind of stunted for so long because of the just the hor- horrible effects of that war. Yeah. That they had to adopt technology to, to keep up, but it wasn't it wasn't naturally accepted like many of the other countries were during the Industrial Revolution. Right. It was it, it was very it was very much a third world, like very old country that was suddenly shocked into the twenty twenty first century. Mm-hmm. Rather than countries like the US that, that developed it and accepted it over time. Exactly. You didn't have that natural evolution of the technology to the point where everyone can understand the development of it. Uh, you know, you go from walking to a semi-truck, um, and that's yeah, that's a your, big leap. Your brain just doesn't think about it the same way. No one's, no one's does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the result of that is you have a country with the highest traffic deaths in all of Asia and I think possibly in all of the world. So you're going to motorcycle from one end of it to the other. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it will be interesting. I'm I'm still, like, throwing it around in my brain, contemplating it. Because I, th- I think I can do it fairly safely. Mm. I just need to be more sure of that. Yeah, it's certainly worth consideration um, and further investigation. But, yeah, I'm not sure I would necessarily sign off on it quite yet. Yes. I need to actually ride a bike more in the U.S. first. <laughs> yeah, just take a motorcycle around and just start doing laps around the island of Manhattan. Just, you know, for yeah. all... Yeah, just all the way, like, up the FDR, down the West Side Highway. Yeah, exactly. When, you're, when you know, you're tired, just cut up Broadway, because you'll be there for, you know, days. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think, think you'll, uh, you'll get lots of practice. Very good. <laughs> So apart from apart from where you were in Nicaragua, where else have you traveled? Um, internationally, I've been to uh, Canada, um, uh, Quebec City, to be precise, uh, which was a very nice trip. Uh, I've also been to Ireland, um, which was fantastic, and would very much like to go back. Uh, what are you doing in Ireland? Um, getting in touch with my roots. As oh, that's Irish. Irish. I am. I'm very Irish. Um, actually, yeah, no, like like a week-long beard uh, and one of those, you know, like Irish, uh, you know, like newsboy caps. Uh, yeah, I was, it was great. Um, Isn't Labar a French name? Labar is a French name, yes. But uh, I have grandmothers on both sides, one McGraw and one McKee. Uh, so mm. there's a lot of Irish blood going on up in there. But uh, by, by last name, yes, I am French. Your veins are filled with black pudding. Yeah, sadly, yes, yeah. <laughs> so many Irish breakfasts. They serve they serve salad with breakfast, really? which is which was odd. I ordered a quiche; it was delicious, and it came with a salad. What kind of salad? Like a you know iceberg lettuce, tomato, onion, red cabbage, dressing. It was it was a conventional side salad served with breakfast. Interesting. Is that traditional or is that like a hipster thing? I, it was everywhere that we went, and we didn't go to very many hipster restaurants. Um, I know as a part of the conventional Irish full breakfast, they call it, um, roasted tomatoes are, uh, are a big part of it. I'm, I'm wondering if it's an extension of that um, uh, or, or something something close to that. Um, but, 
Yeah, no, it was it was wonderful. We really enjoyed Ireland. Uh, surprisingly, the food everywhere we went was outstanding. Um, granted, we didn't eat a ton of traditional Irish food, um, but uh, all of the food that we that we did have, uh, including some of the, the Irish stews and and different different things, were fantastic. Food was wonderful, um, and yeah, the whole place just just felt really cool. Um, you know, here back home when it rains, you know, I get you know all you know upset and moody, but over there it just it felt right. Um, so it uh, it was nice. We really we really enjoyed that trip. So uh, sort of been to Europe with with uh, Ireland, been to been to Canada, Quebec City, um, and now most recently been down to to Central America. Um, next next spot we're not too sure yet. Um, kicking around a couple of different ideas uh, of places to to go next, but uh, definitely don't want to don't want to stop traveling. Um, it's something both uh, my wife and I really enjoy. So. We'll, so see, are, we'll see where we go next. What are the possibilities for the next one? Um, well, going returning to Ireland would be would be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we'd love to go back. I think uh, conventional travel visas can let you will let you stay for up to three months. Um, so, you know, tackling something like that could be a lot of fun. Um, we'd also like to to maybe venture a little further into you know, South America. Um, you know, maybe Peru, maybe Ecuador. Um, somewhere like that, Argentina, perhaps. Um, that could be neat. Uh, we've also considered uh, properly traveling across the United States because uh, neither one of us have, has been uh, out to the to the West Coast at all, and there's certainly a lot to to see and do out there. So that's uh, that's something else we're kicking around. Perhaps the Pacific Northwest, um, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, that kind of thing. Um, that surprises me. You guys have never been to the west coast of the U.S.? No. No, neither one of us. The furthest west uh, that I've been is South Dakota. Um, and the furthest west that my wife has been is Houston, which barely counts as west. Um, so it's just nope. simply west of here. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, neither of us has seen the Rockies or anything like that. So, um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the road trip. I love driving. Um I think it's an awesome way to, to travel and see this country. So, um, yeah, who knows? Maybe an epic road trip of sorts um, or, uh, you know, an extended stay in somewhere in South America or, or Ireland again. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, uh, how long you, you, you know, uh, stay in a place that you travel to. But I've always found the longer I can stay, the more I enjoy the trip and the place and the people and just the experience overall. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a bell curve there. If if you stay for 20 years, it's not a trip anymore. But. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> yeah. I I think, like, between one and three months is kind of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Six months, it starts to feel like home. Um, right. A year is definitely home, but shorter than a month is a little difficult to get a real good, like, handle on the place. Yeah, I feel like less than a month, and it's it's a straight up vacation, and you're limited to doing things that uh, you have to then make a choice. Either you're going to be a straight up tourist, and you're going to see the sites that you've got to see because you're in this place, and they're nowhere else, um, or you kind of go the opposite side, and you're like, well, I'm going to try and be all cool and indie and just you know wander around, and then you risk not really enjoying your time there because <laughs> um, yeah. you don't find anything really enjoyable. That's that that was borderline the mistake I made when I went to Thailand because mm. there there was very few like specific things I wanted to do when we went there, um, 
so we, we just kind of decided we have two weeks in this place. We want to go to these two, like maybe three cities and we'll just walk around and see what we find. Mm-hmm. And only having two weeks, it felt kind of rushed. Um, and we, we felt, we found a number of things that, that was pretty cool, pretty interesting, but to really do that and to, to do it well, you need more time. Mm-hmm. So, so here's another question for you. When you're planning a trip, how much detail do you go into when it comes to deciding what you're going to do or uh, what you want to to see when you're there? As little as possible. Yeah. I, I yeah. I if I do too much of that, then I'll get stressed out when I inevitably like don't follow that schedule. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of just try to follow a, a basic framework of plan the places that I want to go to and how I'm going to get from place to place, the order that I'm going to do them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe a rough time frame for certainly, you know, the day that you arrive, cause that's when your flight arrives. And then you have an idea of how long you want to spend in each time, but nothing concrete that's a, that, that would prevent you from saying, I want to spend an extra day or two here in this place, or I'm not really feeling this one. So I'm just going to, leave a day early. Mm-hmm. So I, I try and leave it as flexible as possible. And then in a place, maybe, maybe have one or two things that I really do want to, to do that the place is known for or something, but then just the rest of the time, just wander around and try and find interesting things. I feel like that ends up better than the standard touristy plan everything out to the T. Yeah, I think it's, again, one of those classic cases where balance uh, ends up yielding the best results because I'm certainly the the sort of person who's inclined to research everything to death uh, out of fear of missing something or getting back and realizing, oh, I wish I'd done this or known about this or whatever. Um, But I'm not the sort to put together an itinerary and say, you know, exactly where we're going to go at exactly this time each and every moment of the entire trip. Um, I'm, I'm very similar to you in that, you know, I want to have some basic ideas of, you know, maybe a couple of must-see things and a rough plan of where we're going to be when. Uh, but then from there, just get to the place and see what we see, see what looks good, what um, seems interesting, and just kind of let that flow. Uh, otherwise, I feel like you rob yourself of a lot of joy of travel because a lot of the, the joy comes in the discovery. Yeah, and if... If you're just trying to follow a schedule and it's like a day of meetings at work, like, yeah. I don't want that. That's, that's not <laughs> relaxing at all. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I want the ability to sit in the sidewalk cafe and, I don't know, sip a, sip a mimosa at eight in the morning <laughs> and and not have to worry about where I'm off to next. Yeah. Like, just walk and, down the street and find stuff. And I think that's that's the sort of thing where once you can go someplace for an extended period of time, and, and I mean that, you know, one to three month window. That's when you get more time to explore, more time to settle into the area, and to really get an accurate feel for it. Um, so that that's sort of the goal that um, my wife and I shoot for when when we're traveling to try and and hit something in that sort of time range, um, if if at all possible. Uh, and and you know we've we've really enjoyed that when we can. Uh, that that's I think the the main reason why we'd want to go back to, to Ireland. Uh, when we were there, we only we had a little over a week uh, of time there, so we felt like we were just getting started. Um, so we'd like to kind of go back and, and explore that a little bit more. How do you like to handle things like uh, hotels and 
rooming accommodations and stuff? Um, if I'm roughly planning out the, the timing of like, Hey, we're going to be in this place for this long and this place for this long. Um, then I'll, I'll kind of cement that by saying, okay, then, you know, we're staying here, we're staying there. Um, I generally like to have those sort of things planned out ahead of time. Uh, you know, the hotel reservations, if, if it's, you know, reasonable wherever we're at, um, to, to reserve the, the hotel ahead of time. Um, with the exception kind of being road trips, um, on, on a road trip, I'm, I'm much more willing to just say, well, we're going to get in the car and drive. And when we're sick of it, we can stop somewhere and I'm sure there'll be something nearby. (laughs) I guess what I meant more is like, what kind of accommodation do you generally try for? Ah, um, we're not terribly picky. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a four-star penthouse suite. Um, but we draw the line at, at uh, hostel dorms. Um, hostel in both meanings of the word, personally. Um, <laughs> we really? You're, very... you're, not a fan, you're not a fan of hostels? We're, we're, if it's got a private room and a private bathroom, then I'm okay with it. But uh, neither one of us is big fans of uh, the sharing a room with, you know, seven other strangers and a bathroom with a dozen people. Um, I, I did that, uh, you know, for, for a time in, in other contexts and I wasn't the biggest fan of it. So yeah, no, not, a not, not feeling that myself. Interesting. I, I don't know. What, what is your reason for the aversion to it? Um, I don't like people. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I, 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 yeah, that, that's not true. Um, obviously part of traveling is, is meeting people. Duh. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, we both, especially my wife and I, when we're traveling together, you know, we want a place that's, um, that we can go back to and not have to worry about, um, talking to other people and can actually relax in. Um, if I'm, if I'm in a room with, you know, like six other people, I'm not relaxed. So, so that, that kind of, you know, puts a bummer on the rest of the trip if I'm, you know, not sleeping the best and not actually unwinding when we're done wandering and walking and, you know, doing who knows what. Yeah, I, I definitely see an aspect of that and I kind of have some of the same feelings, but the times I've stayed in hostels, I've just met the most awesome people because it, it's a very specific kind of person that stays at hostels. Yes. Yes, it is. And I feel like I'm not enough of that person. I have okay. elements of that person. Uh, I can get along with those people in short periods of time, but I'm not enough of that kind of person to to enjoy staying at a hostel. Hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite hostel experience ever, it, it was this place called the Abominable Snow Mansion. Excellent start. <laughs> Excellent start, yeah. Um, it was in Taos, New Mexico. Um, we, three, two of my friends and I, we had road tripped from Fort Worth, Texas up to to Taos. It's about a 13 hour drive or so. Okay. And, uh, we were, our goal on this trip was to climb, uh, I think it was called Wheeler Peak. It's like the highest mountain in New Mexico, Hmm. 13,000 some feet. Um, so we get there, we camp for a night and then spend a day ascending this mountain and back. And then at this point we're just... We're just, like, tired and don't really want to stay in tents for another night. Sure. So we decided to move to this hostel. And it was just super fun, like, meeting all these random people that happened to be staying here and, like, playing pool with them one night and just, like, finding out the stories of how they ended up at this place <laughs> in, in the middle of the wilderness of New Mexico. 
Yeah, you can definitely uh, find some amazing stories, and it can be a very uh, almost romantic in a different sense of the word um, <laughs> uh, experience to to be able to do something like that, and you know, serendipitously, you know, meet these people that you otherwise never would in a million years. Um, but I think because of the amount of time that my wife and I like to travel for, um, that also comes into play with our our dislike of hostels for an extended period of time um i think you know upgrading to a hostel from a tent um that that i might be down for uh, <laughs> different situations um but if i've got the option of a private room at a conventional hotel uh for a reasonable price that i can afford uh i'll probably ma- make that my top choice yeah i go back and forth and when we were in Thailand, we stayed in, in that sort of thing most of the time. Like, not really hotels. There were more guest houses, but we had mm-hmm. private rooms. Because there, there is definitely something to be said to being able to escape. Yeah. And, and if I like you the, want to. I like the private room and, like, the where it is feels more like a guest house uh, kind of thing. One of the places we stayed in Nicaragua um, was at this amazing Laguna. And it, you know, we called it a hotel, but it basically was, like... The people who owned the property lived in one house, and they rented out two more houses that were much smaller on the property, and that was the hotel. Like, like that was it. Um, and for our entire time there, we were the only ones who were there. We had private access to a beach and to kayaks, and it was just exquisite. Um, you know, that that's kind of a hotel, but it's also, at the same time, not. <laughs> it's, it's something else. Yeah, it's not a Hilton. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it, it was not licensed by Wyndham. No, there's no $18, like, buffet continental breakfast. No, we were, we were excited when we found out they took credit cards. Because <laughs> we impressive. didn't think they did. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to keep doing research on Vietnam and see if I'm going to get myself into a death trap or not trying to ride... Yeah, I'm ride twelve hundred miles. But exactly. I, I think you need the mutton chops. If you if you grow the mutton chops, then you know you can you can handle the motorcycle. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can grow mutton chops. <laughs> so but, what what you're telling me is that if Wolverine can do it, I can do it too. Is not a good life philosophy. It it might be a good life philosophy, but <laughs> that part of my face just doesn't grow great hair. <laughs> I'm I'm much more prone to have a neck beard by the end of this trip than I am mutton chops. Well, you're a Unix programmer, so that's that's natural. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately unavoidable. It is. It's true. You learn a certain amount of bash, and then it just appears. You have no yeah, control it's, over it. It's all of all of your follicles move from the top of your head to under your chin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's involuntary. It is. <laughs> Uh, and then you are unable to access the tail command. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach. I'll see you next week. Sounds good, man.